Our text this morning, continuing our Advent series on traditional lectionary reading Advent texts, is James chapter 5, was a New Testament lesson. It's a text about patience, and patience is a foundational and crucial virtue in the Christian life. It's absence, which we know all too well in our souls, is a spiritual sickness. And we'll see, it's a, it's a sickness that betrays a profound kind of unbelief. And as our text shows, it is, among other things, a concrete, practical unbelief in the future advent, the future coming of the Lord, which we might not instinctively make that connection. Again, impatience, then, is a form of practical atheism. So we'll look at the text under three headings, patience, which is mentioned four times here in five verses in James and then speech, and then the example he uses. Patience, speech, the example. So first then, patience. The text starts, this is James chapter 5, verse 7. It starts with a command, and it's a command which in the context of the book of James comes to a church which is suffering oppression at the hands of the rich and the powerful. But after all, so, so first thing to see here is he's, just, he's not first and foremost talking about try and be a little more patient. He's talking about a kind of bearing up by an impoverished church under rich and powerful structures and of, of oppression. That's what he means. We tend to just personalize these things and moralize them and shrink them down to, to the level of our own lives. But that's not first and foremost what James has in view. The command to patience is a command that comes to a church suffering. It comes to a church under oppression. We don't need it, right, when things are going well. The command to them and to us is simple, and it's demanding, and in some ways it's somewhat scandalous. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Well, how long? I mean, how long do I have to be patient for? James says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Like this is a permanent status of the church in history until Christ appears again. He could have said, look, be patient until we can turn this cultural situation around and you're no longer oppressed. But he doesn't say that to them. It's kind of a shocking expression. I mean, the eschaton, the coming of the Lord... It shapes and it measures patience. When is the last time any of us ever encouraged someone, a child, a friend, anyone, in patience with the eschaton being the motivator? Right? Because we are inveterate moralizers. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, we'll explore this connection a little bit. But let's start by asking what we sort of already know, but we struggle to put into words. What is patience? Well, it's basically the virtue of seeing what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches over and over. Namely, 
that we are not in control of our lives or the lives, especially the lives of others. Right? If you need help with a delusional optimism, I commend the book of Ecclesiastes. There we're repeatedly told that the created order lies under the effects of a curse, and thus it's mysterious, it's ungraspable, it's inscrutable, it's vaporous, and we are vaporous. And so recognizing this, right, patience then is about, John Webster says, I quoted Webster last week, he he comments on this particular text as well, but he says it's about allowing things to run their course in God's good time. It makes space, not only for the sovereign spirit to act, but it enables us to make space for ourselves, space for other people. Patience lets people and it lets things take the time they need. We'll see why in a minute, but patience refuses to manipulate. And as such, we we can go through life without railing against constraints, against obstacles, against frustrations, against the other political party. Right? Railing. Patience, then, is fundamentally about waiting. Right? It's not about railing. It's about waiting. And we moderns, right, we, we generally don't wait well. But waiting, it turns out, is not one virtue among others in the Christian life. It has a sort of structural priority. It's basic. It's primitive. We might think, oh, there's a list of Christian things, and somewhere in there, there's patience. But the the kind of waiting that the gospel calls us to is basic. 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says this. And again, he connects some things we might not instinctively connect. He says, you have turned from idols to the living God, In order to what? We might think, well, in order to engage on a program of discipleship so that you can be whatever. There's a lot of stuff we put right there, right? You're a new Christian. He's talking about the moment of, right, the inception of their Christian existence. Their conversion. You have turned from idols, you Thessalonians, to serve the living God in order to wait. That's the next word. Wait for what? Wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Again, advice we're not likely to give anybody who's a new convert. So notice, Paul thinks we are saved into a perpetual state of waiting and not waiting in general, not waiting for Christendom, Not waiting for America's restoration. Not waiting for the Christianization of Thessalonica. But waiting for the final appearance, the advent of the Son of God. It's intrinsic to Christian conversion to be waiting for that. And that's precisely what we see in the text from James. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The coming, which is, is mentioned or alluded to, depending on how you count. But one scholar says the coming of the Lord is mentioned about 300 times in the New Testament. Is your thing mentioned 300 times? You know, I talk a lot about this God and X thing. Everybody's got their X. God shrinks down and he basically becomes an instrument for us to get X done. Is your X mentioned 300 times? Because the coming of the Lord is mentioned once every 13 verses in the whole New Testament. The stuff that we prattle on about is usually mentioned zero times. So the end, as we see here, is of immense practical importance to James. It's important to suffering people. It's important to oppressed people. It has enormous practical consequence. Right? Any thinking that says, well, I could just bracket out the day of God that we read off last week, that's out there. Let's talk about now. Right? Does not understand the basic structure of the Christian faith. Patient people, James is saying, patient people, now get this, they live as if they actually believe that the Lord who has come will come again. And you know what that means? They don't have to fix everything. They don't have to take vengeance for themselves. Because they believe that he will come and he will right all wrongs. From, by the way, all wrongs, including all the wrongs that go back to the foundation of the world. He'll, you know, from Cain's murder of Abel to every mundane slight in every human relationship ever among all the living and the dead. And that means, oh, I can give stuff time. I can give stuff space because this, this future resolution is secured and guaranteed to me. And so patient people live as if God will come and sort out our tangled lives, which are almost never sorted out in this age. That he's going to tie up all the loose ends. That he's going to consummate all the unfinished movements of our lives. That he's going to judge the living and the dead with equity and with righteousness. The hundreds of millions of dead killed unjustly. The blood-drenched earth crying out for vengeance. All of that stuff. He's going to restore the whole mangled creation. And if that is so, then all, all will be well. And this means we don't have to manipulate. And we don't have to fret. And we don't have to fume with anger. And we don't have to rush. We have no need to rush. We don't have to bend people and things and situations into the form that we think that they must take. If you have to have your glory in history, then you're going to have to bend people. And you're going to have to bend things. And you're going to have to bend situations. But if you're waiting patiently for the coming of the Lord, there's a lot of stuff you can let go. There's a lot of liberation. If your inheritance 
is on the earth, well then, you know, anger is going to arise. Impatience is going to arise. But Peter tells us our inheritance is in heaven. And it's undefiled. It's kept for you there. It's unfading. It's imperishable. Not a shred of anything about your inheritance depends on the 2024 election. Not a shred. How could it? Your inheritance is the triune God. So patience then means freedom. Freedom to wait. Freedom to take a deep breath. Freedom to let things and people be. Its opposite, of course, is impatience. Impatience arises when we can't control. When we try, but we cannot remove the frustrations of life because you know what? Life is recalcitrant. So are people. We can't bend things, it turns out, to our ideal or to our utopian dreams. And impatience refuses to be hemmed in by limitations. The limitations of our own corruption, our own brokenness, the limitations of our situations, the limitations of others. Now, there's another form of failing to wait patiently besides impatience. Webster identifies resignation as the opposite problem. We simply give up. Right? We can gradually lay aside spiritual discipline and we can refuse to live alert, awake, attentive lives. We bracket out the day of God, the day of fire that we saw last week from 2 Peter 3. Most of us probably bracketed it out all week. Both impatience and resignation are profound failures to believe in the end, the coming of the Lord. Impatience grasps for the end. It's the activist's sin, impatience. It wants full resolution or, or substantial resolution, and it wants it now. Resignation says, well, the end is irrelevant. It's far off. It's kind of a fantasy. It's the passive sin. So the text shows us something important. We talk a lot here about, you know, lively expectation for the end. But when all is said and done, right, when you said everything that needs to be said, and a lot needs to be said, but when you said everything that needs to be said about longing for the kingdom and looking for and expecting the resurrection and the vindication of the martyrs, all of that, when it's all been said, we are not thereby called into a state of perpetual discontent or alienation with the world. We are called to a state of waiting patiently. Yes, it's an active waiting. It's a yearning, even a groaning, Paul calls it, to be sure. But it is a waiting which participates in and respects the rhythms and the order of life. You can see that in the example James gives in the middle of verse 7. So he says this, Be patient, brothers, till the coming, for the coming of the Lord. And then he says this. Here's, here's how he illustrates the point. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, or in some translations, the autumn and the spring rains. So farmers 
are generally patient people. And if they're not patient by temperament, their calling and their craft is going to impose a certain kind of patience on them. Right? The farmer's waiting is a kind of holy submission to the timing of God, to his appointed seasons of sowing and reaping. In which we learn, by the way, from the farmer, right, that the very bread which sustains us lies beyond our ability to manufacture. Vegan meat products notwithstanding. The bread which sustains us lies beyond our ability to manufacture. Right? Waiting people know that even in their activity, like even when mankind is at its most ferociously aggressive and active, it is a profoundly receptive species. Right? We live and we move and we have our being from another. We are always receiving what we don't have, even in our activity. The whole creation is upheld by the word of God. And thus there's a certain fundamental receptivity, or if you will, passivity, to just being a creature. To be a creature is to be dependent. And the farmer reminds us of that. We can't even create the food that keeps us alive, much less the next breath. He waits, the text says, for the precious fruit of the earth. He's waiting for the harvest, which is a yearly wonder. And it's a parable, James thinks, of the final harvest of righteousness. Right? The harvest is a, is a parable of the final harvest of righteousness, which will be unveiled at the coming of the Lord. You should not put, here I, I speak hyperbolically, a thing in your mouth without thinking of the eschaton, right? Because a little natural parable was the thing died, the seed died, something was sown in the earth like we will soon be sown into the earth, and then the thing was raised in new life as a parable and a pointer to the harvest, and thus you eat, right? All eating is eschatological eating. So the farmer's life, it turns out, is naturally attuned. Again, it's not naturally attuned to some future historical victory. It's naturally attuned to the coming harvest, James says. He knows about the coming of the Lord because he pulls stuff out of the ground. And thus he learns the art of waiting. He is patient, the text says, about his human labor until his human labor receives what he cannot supply. He can't supply the early rain. He can't supply the late rain. He can do nothing. Even with modern technology, he can do very little to speed up the relationship between seed sown into the earth and crop. So that means... He's not caught up in a corporate frenzied culture like I worked in for 25 years, which insists that you must do this year's crop faster than you did last year's crop. Right? This year's microprocessor must run 20% faster than last year's microprocessor. Because what would happen to the world if we didn't have faster microprocessors next year? Thus, verse 8 sets the farmer forth as a model for us to imitate. You too, 
See what the farmer does? He waits. He sows, he waits. You too, he says, be patient. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Why should, why should we be patient and establish our hearts? You see this in verse 8? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. What is this? This is two references to the eschaton in two verses. We can talk about farming and gardening for our whole lives. If God gave us 50 lives, we could talk about farming and gardening without ever connecting it to the eschaton. He's just, James is just trying to encourage people to be patient. And twice, you should establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Farmers themselves are eschatological parables to us. You too, like them, be patient, establish your heart. Why should you establish your heart? For, that is because, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The Christian life, as we say here a lot, works from the end back into the present. Establish here, establish your heart. It's the same word used of Jesus where it is said that he set his heart to go to Jerusalem. It means to settle or to calm or to root your frame of mind. And this is to be done in light of the fact that the coming of the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord, it turns out, is the source, it is the ground, it is the reason for patience. We're impatient because we get this wrong. It's, it's the ground of calmness. It's the ground of stability. Again, we're not talking about chronological nearness necessarily. This is the nearness of an event which has already arrived in Jesus Christ and in which but one movement, his reappearing, remains for its full consummation. There's one unveiling, one grand revelatory act of God that remains in history, and that's the second coming of Christ. That doesn't mean the stuff that happens between the ascension and the second coming is inconsequential. It just means it's under the main plot line of the great mighty redemptive acts of God. Resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, coming in glory. The church, that's the proportion the church has always um, sought to nurture in her saints, in her children. By the way, we see this in the creed. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. What's next? From which he shall come in glory. Nothing between the ascension and his coming in glory is of creedal significance to us. Nothing between the ascension and the coming of glory is of creedal significance. It's of significance, it's just not of creedal significance. It's not of Nicene significance. If we believe the coming of the Lord is at hand then, as we saw last week, it might at first disturb us and unnerve us and jolt us. You can't jolt the world with an unjolted church. And we have an unjolted church. And that's good. It's necessary to be jolted for us. But then it moves us. We're to be moved to stability to resoluteless, right, to establishing our hearts. For established hearts are patient hearts. They're purposeful hearts. And as we saw, patient hearts can live with unfulfilled desires. James's Christians, please get this, are not fixing or transforming a single cultural thing. They're oppressed. They're suffering. James expects them to continue to be oppressed and suffer. 
But he also expects them to be patient. Right? Patient people can live with a fair measure of frustration. It's a beautiful thing. You can give other people and other processes their time and their space because we trust that over and above and in all of these things, all of these agitations, stands not just the Lord, but the coming Lord who will resolve these things. See, it's not quite enough, frankly, to say, yes, I'm trusting Jesus in the midst of this chaos. We have to trust a Jesus who's going to sort the chaos out in exhaustive detail with his omnipresence and his omniscience and his infinite power and glory. That's what we need. That's what the martyrs need. That's what the blood of the innocent wants. Even human justice can't do this. It's always partial. So our second point is speech. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. So what's James' connection here? He's saying impatience is manifest most openly in our speech. Impatient people are grumblers. Never against themselves. Almost always against other people, other situations that are not meeting their standards. And, you know, often the excuse for this is that it's a kind of truth-telling or it's brutal honesty. But in fact, it's a form of impatience. Grumbling is a form of impatience. And it's a form, James thinks, of idolatrous impatience at that. He says we should not do it so that we will not be judged. God judges grumbling. Why? Why should we not do it lest we be judged? Well, the text says this. For the judge is standing at the door. Now, if you're counting along, that's the third reference to the eschaton in three verses. Grumbling against others is a form of judgment against them. And as such, it is a wicked assuming to ourselves of the prerogatives of the judge, the one whose coming is at hand. Grumblers do not really, concretely believe in the coming judgment. That's what James is saying. To grumble against your brother is to assume the role of judge, and to assume the role of judge is to forget the eschaton, that namely, the judge is at hand, and you too will be judged. Yes, grumblers, if you ask them, will formally check the box, I believe in the second coming of Jesus. But practically, they are atheists with respect to it. They cannot wait patiently for God to be the judge, so they usurp the role of judge now. That's what all of our grumbling is about. But love, as opposed to grumbling, right, Paul says, is patient. Love is patient. And patience, we see here, is a crucial social virtue. It facilitates the fellowship of the people of God because we're all sinners and probably to all different extents, all grumblers. You know what patience does that's the opposite of grumbling? It create, and we, we aspire to do this here, right? It creates a culture of benediction, like where you're blessing people with your words, right? Where you're speaking and pronouncing blessing. That's the opposite of grumbling. And the culture of benediction, or a culture where you are blessing your brothers, and look, this would be easy if everybody agreed with us, 
What makes this hard is we don't all agree with each other. But the church is to be a culture of benediction and blessing, and that banishes the culture of grumbling. Grumbling is an insidious, hideous wickedness that tends to get tolerated in the church. When's the last time anybody got disciplined or excommunicated for grumbling? So Advent faith means the cessation of grumbling. For if we have this hope that the coming of the Lord is at hand and that we too will stand before the judge who is at the door, we'll establish our hearts, James says, purify ourselves and our speech as the one who is coming is pure. So the third and final point here is the example that James uses. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, he says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And here we see something new. And it's that patience and suffering are linked. It's not simply that we're to be patient in suffering, though that is true, and the Bible says it everywhere. But patience itself, under the oppression and the indignities of life, patience is a form of suffering. Like, patience is not an easy thing. It's a kind of suffering. A patient person realizes that they are, if you will, a patient. Right? They're on the table of God's good providence. A patient suffers. A patient submits. A patient undergoes with good cheer what they can in no way escape. And to be impatient just makes the work of the divine surgeon more complex. Makes it take longer. And so, now notice what he does for the new covenant people of God here. He says, when it comes to this patience thing, you are called to look to the prophets and their example. That's a good example, right? I mean, the prophets didn't get any earthly power or reward. They suffered patiently. They suffered on the margins of Israel. They suffered from the powers that be. They spoke up and they strained to see about what they spoke And the word they spoke has now become flesh. And we stand in need of their example. So again, we don't just need the prophetic word, the prophets of the Old Testament. We need to look at the history of patient suffering undergone by Isaiah and by Amos and the prophets. Because we are a prophetic company. All of the powers, all of the churches potency with respect to her witness in the world is a prophetic potency. And the prophets almost always are the most effective when they witness from the margins. We're a prophetic people looking for the full realization of the prophetic promises in the coming of the Lord. That's why he adduces the prophets here. Verse 11, we consider blessed those who have remained steadfast. Right? No patience, no endurance, no steadfastness. Impatience, right, is the failure to stand fast. Blessed, we, he says, we consider them blessed who persevere. Blessed here means something like happy. Patience is the key to happiness. Right? Almost all unhappiness is because we don't have something that we think we need. Or something that we think God wants for us to have. So we're unhappy. 
we could have 98% of what we want, and if we don't have that other 2%, we tend to get fixated on that small amount. It makes us miserable. So patience removes this evil restlessness, which leaves us constantly frustrated and discontent. It's the freedom to live blessed, happy, in the light of the coming Lord, who, indeed, who sometimes, despite appearances, does all things well. In the middle of verse 12, he reminds us of Job, right? In spite of numerous lapses, by the way, of patience on Job's part, he did nonetheless remain steadfast. And in his life, what we see what the Lord finally brought about. We see what James calls the broader purpose of the Lord. We trust the end of God's ways and works. And Job's a fitting example, right? Because Job suffered things that, you know, are incomprehensible things. We often feel that there's no purposeful hand in the events that shape our lives, and that's what leads to our impatience. And you don't need the devastation that befell Job, though sometimes the saints get something close to it. Right? We don't need that because we, if we know ourselves, sometimes even the simplest things can cause us to feel as if the whole cosmos is careening out of control and our steadfastness just easily unravels. And then four hours later, you return to your senses and you're like, what was that? What was that? Who was I last night? Like the simplest things can cause us to unravel. And thus it's the end of Job's ordeal that reminds us in these two powerful and emotional words of the Lord's sovereign goodness. And I want you to hear these two words as we close this morning. In him we see that the Lord is full of compassion. Right? He's the God of much tender feeling. And mercy. Those are the two words. Compassion and mercy. Full of pity. So the word is to a suffering and oppressed church, but behind the frowning providence, behind all that is done to us and all that befalls us is the purpose of this God. The God whose tender heart, full of steadfast pity, is moved by and toward us in our plight. It's not as if God says, I'll deal with everything when I come back. I mean, he does say that. But what he also says is, in the meantime, I will be tender and merciful and compassionate to you in the midst of life's sufferings. So be patient. Be patient. Right? It is this compassion and mercy which appeared out of the whirlwind to Job and will be unveiled in full splendor when Christ comes again as the judge who's at the door. Now, the example of Job, admittedly, can be a bit daunting. Um, but it reminds us of something we haven't said about patience to this point. One last thing about patience. And namely, it can never be a natural attainment. <laughs> yes, some of us might have natural, common grace gifts and been brought up in a certain way that we're a little more patient than others. But that's not what's in view here. This is the gift of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. Because it's the Spirit who's the Lord and giver of life. It's the Spirit who gives the farmer seed, life, and growth. It's the Spirit who brings forth food from the face of the earth. And the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord, the judge. And he himself, the Spirit, is the gift, the down payment, the earnest of our future inheritance. Thus, in seeking and looking for the coming of the Lord, we yearn and we seek to be filled with the Spirit. 
Seeking to be filled with the Spirit, apart from seeking the appearance of Jesus in glory, is nonsensical to Paul. The two things are two sides of the same thing. The Spirit is the power of the age to come. The Spirit is the Spirit of the exalted, transfigured, and coming Christ. So we must be filled with the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from control, freedom from grumbling, freedom to wait, freedom to act with established, resolute determination, freedom to live with established hearts. In short, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is patience, because patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience, bathed in the certainty of the advent light of the coming Lord. Amen.